Hear now our scripture for the morning from the Gospel of Matthew and from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And in Colossians, in him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you to be alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. The word of the Lord. I'm going to practice teaching the way Jesus and the early rabbis taught this morning by sitting on a stool. My doctor didn't say uh, that I couldn't preach in the normal way, but she's never seen me preach, and she said, don't do anything strenuous. So, um, uh uh-oh, what happened here? All right, I need to restart my app. Give me a second. There we go. All right. So we're continuing our series on worship. We're looking four different weeks at kind of what does worship mean, and we're, we're framing it through four S words. Last week we looked at story, and we looked at how important story is to worship because it's the story of God that he's given to his people throughout the ages and that he completed in Jesus and that he continues to live out in the church today that really drives our worship, especially as Presbyterians, especially as Reformed Christians, we put story as the central place of our public worship by putting the Word in the central place. And our whole worship service is designed around approaching the Word, proclaiming the Word, responding to the Word, being sent out in the Word. And so this is an important part of what it means to be a Presbyterian, is that story is central to our worship. Now this week we're looking at symbols, and we're looking at the fact that that the story of God given to the people of God is represented in symbols. It's represented in symbols. This is not a new thing. Symbols have been around for a very, very long time. And it seems like humanity really enjoys symbols. All cultures make symbols to represent deeper meanings of things so that people, when they look at it, can automatically get that deeper meaning without all of it needing to be written down. Just think of the depth of information that's conveyed in the symbol of our communion table, 
right? It tells a, a great story, and yet we didn't, we didn't have to write a big postcard here that shows that entire story. All of you look at the communion table, and you know the story that's behind it. And so this symbol allows you to understand something deeper than just the simplicity of the symbol itself. So symbol is something that's important. And I think God built us this way because very, very early in Genesis chapter 2, we see God create the Garden of Eden and he puts two symbols in it. What are they? Two trees. One tree is for life and the other tree leads to death right? One tree life, one tree death. These are symbols right in the beginning, a choice between life and death that the the first two humans, Adam and Eve, could make. And so this is a great symbolic gesture by God to give a tangible, tangible thing for the the first people to understand something that's greatly intangible. Obedience and faith to God as our knowledge of good and evil, following after him, receiving his life, or choosing our own way, choosing our own knowledge of good and evil, rebelling against him, and choosing the way of death. So God built that in, but it wasn't over there. God rescued his people from Egypt, and they then, he gave them a specific symbolic celebration of that moment called the what? Help me out here. What is it called? The Seder meal, but the Seder meal wasn't for way later. The original celebration is called what? Passover, right? Passover. Why? Why was it called Passover? That's right. I heard you guys say it. That's because in the original event, they painted lamb's blood above their door to mark that they were of the Hebrew people. And then the angel of death who came to kill the firstborn of everything in Egypt, uh, skipped over all the houses with the blood above the door. And so here's this Passover of the Hebrew people. And so the Hebrew people celebrated this to remember the miracle of God bringing them out of slavery and bringing them into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And so there's all kinds of symbolism in this, the Passover meal that's now called the Seder meal, which is slightly more modern take on the Passover meal. They would eat lamb to represent the lamb that was slaughtered. They would, uh, they would eat bitter herbs and, and they would dip it into uh, salt water to represent kind of the bitterness of the slavery and the bitterness of having to leave everything that they had known and the tears that they would shed, right? There's unleavened bread. Why was it unleavened bread? Because they didn't have time to let it rise. They baked on their backs as in the hot Egyptian sun as they left Egypt. And so there's all this symbolism right there in that early meal. Beyond that, the, the whole people of Israel ran on symbolism. What are these? Do you guys know what these are? Yeah, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Did you know that each tribe in Israel had its own sign? Its own animal that kind of related to that one. Asher has the palm tree, Benjamin the wolf, Dan the serpent, Gad a tent, uh, the tent of meeting specifically. Issachar is a donkey. Joseph is a, is a gathering of wheat stalks, if you remember that from his dream, right? Uh, Judah, a lion. Uh, Levi is the priest's ephod, the, the priest's um, breastplate that had all the 12 tribes' uh, stones in them. Nephtali was a uh, ram. Uh, Reuben, the ocean, Simeon, a fortress, and Zebulun, a uh, ship, okay? And they all had significance to the character of those tribes, sometimes where they lived. Like, obviously, where do you think Zebulun lived? 
Near the beach, yeah, somewhere on the coast, right? Um, you know, where do you think maybe Issachar lived? Somewhere is rocky where you need a lot of donkeys to get up and down hills and mountains and stuff, yeah? I, that's pretty much all of Israel. That's probably maybe unfair. But uh, these are the symbols of the people of Israel. It, it, it characterized who they were deep within their roots and who they came from, and, and it defined them in many different ways. But beyond that, there was all kinds of symbolism in their temple once they built their temple. This is a replica of the lampstand, the golden lampstand that would have been found. Many of them would have been found in the original temple. Uh, and this is huge, by the way. It's giant. And this is sitting in the Jewish quarter in Israel today. And somebody uh, made this replica based off of the biblical instructions. Well, does anybody know the significance of this lampstand? Does anybody know what it's about? Maybe three people who went with me down to a thing and heard about it. What is it, Brian? Okay, maybe, I don't know. I actually don't know that fact. Mark, did you have anything? Uh, of an olive tree. So specifically at each little corner is like an olive bud and olive uh, you know, f- flower. And the branches going up are supposed to be like an olive tree because olives were so important to the people of Israel. One, because olives are plenty in Israel. It's, it's a whole industry, right? There's a whole reason why there was a mount of right outside of Jerusalem. Because they needed to press all those olives to make enough oil for what? The temple. And where would it be burnt? A lot in this lamp right here, right? And they would also do anointings and other things. So the olive tree became a very a vital part of, of Hebrew life, and it became to mean something to the Hebrew people. Now, remember Noah. When Noah got word back from the dove that there was land and that it was safe to, to begin to, like, disembark the—what was it? What was the dove holding? An olive branch, right? Okay, and uh, also you see later on that there's important staffs that are made of olive wood and stuff. And so olives are incredibly important. And this symbolism that God gave to the people of Israel in this lampstand was to remind them of the important gift that God gave to them in the olive. Do you guys recognize this symbol? What is it? A fish. More specifically, what's the, the kind of technical term for this exact fish? Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Ichthus. Ichthus. Partly because ichthus is the Greek word for fish, but also because early Christians used that Greek word to create a five-word acrostic, okay? It was Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Jesus Christus, Theos, or Theu, Huias, Soter. Okay, those are the five letters that make ichthus, and that's what it means. It means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And the fish was something that pagans used. So get this, this is probably one of the earliest used Christian images because they couldn't get in trouble for using it because no one could distinguish that it was a specifically Christian image. Okay, why is the fish important to Christians? Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. 
Jesus made a miraculous catch of fish, which first kind of got the attention of the disciples. Jesus later in his restoration after the resurrection ate with his disciples a meal of fish on the beach, right? Fish seemed to follow over and over again throughout the gospel and the story of Jesus. And so fish was an important image for the early Christians. And it just kind of fit in all this way. Now, there's also another story, an early story, and no one's uh, really made this for sure. We don't know this for sure, but it's an early legend that one of the things that the Christians would do is that as they came to each other on the road or as they would meet each other in new towns and they were unsure if somebody else was a Christian, like if I saw Mike and I was unsure if Mike was a Christian, I might come up to Mike and I might just go like this in the sand and draw the top half of that fish. And if Mike recognized what I was doing and on his side drew the other half, the bottom half, creating the fish, the ichthus, then what would I know about Mike? He was a safe person for me to talk about Jesus with, right? I wasn't going to be persecuted by this man because he knew this secret symbol. And so this is an early legend about how this was used. But we do know that the ichthus is found on all kinds of ancient holy places marking them, grave sites, early house churches and other places where Christians could recognize it as a specifically Christian symbol, but the Romans couldn't recognize it that way, so they couldn't persecute the people who were inside. Here's another very early Christian symbol. What is this? Nobody knows. This is the chi Rho. The chi Rho. Because it's the first two Greek letters of the word Christos. Cairo. Okay, and so this was used very, very often to represent Jesus, represent specifically the Messiah, Christ, okay? And then they added in at some point Alpha and Omega because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. And so this is another early symbol that Christians would use. By the way, have any of you noticed that some of these are on our medallions around the room? All of these medallions are really uh, all connected to ancient uh, Christian symbols, Christian images that allow uh, Christians for out time to recognize deeper meanings, deeper stories. And so these medallions are a very important part of our worship service. And we have a whole booklet that actually explains what each medallion means. And if you want one, I'm sure we can probably dig one up for you. So just talk to Vicki or Nancy or somebody and they'll be able to figure it out. What about this? What's this? No, what is it? It's not a rooster. It's a weather vane, and it's got a rooster on top. Does anybody know why? Peter. Peter. Why? Why is the rooster on top of a weather vane? <laughs> All right. So the rooster crowed three times, which was the symbol Jesus gave to Peter that he was going to betray him, he was going to betray Jesus. And when Peter heard the third time the rooster crow, he knew that Jesus had predicted his own betrayal. And he, and he was heartbroken over his own betrayal, right? So the rooster became a very important early symbol of Christianity because of this, because of the restoration of Peter, because of the humiliation of Peter, and then the restoration of Peter in that moment. Why is it on top of a weather vane? No. Come on, we're Presbyterians. We should get this. It's super pragmatic. Where was a weather vane put on any building? The topmost part, right? And so at some point, one, I think it was in the ninth century sometime, a pope put a 
crow or a, uh, put a rooster on top of St. Peter's Basilica to represent Peter and that moment of the rooster. And then he decided, you know what? This is so good. Everyone should put a rooster on their weather vanes. And so he decreed it across the entire Christian nation. Now we see roosters on top of weather vanes all the time, but do we know that history? Do we think that? No, we should. And now you do. And now you will because the symbolism's there. But Jesus gave us symbols. It's not even just these symbols that were created after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and the church was left in the wake to figure things out. But Jesus himself gave us symbols. We saw in our Matthew passage that Jesus says, when you gather together, eat bread, take this bread and understand it as my body. Now at that point, he hadn't died, right? The disciples were sitting there thinking, what the heck are you talking about? Because they didn't know that he was about to be betrayed, that he was about to have his body physically broken for them, and that he was going to be marred and beaten, and then he was going to have a, a, a staff, a, a spear placed into his heart. He didn't, they didn't know any of that. They didn't know about his flesh being broken for them. And so when he's giving them this piece of bread, it must have been the weirdest thing ever. Okay, Jesus. <laughs> it must have been weird, and yet it became some of the most significant symbolism for all of Christianity. In fact, I've said this before, but you guys probably already knew it before I said it. One of the first things that Christians were brought up on charges for was cannibalism. Because they, all the outsiders would hear about them having this meal where they were eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, and they were like, Ugh, what is this weird cult that goes around eating people? And this is the symbolism that Jesus gave to us, his own flesh, his own blood, his own sacrifice for us. But he gave us another symbol, the symbol of baptism, right? He told us to baptize others. He commanded his disciples to do it. And Paul gives us some context as to what this symbol means in the Colossians passage. What did that symbol mean in the Colossians passage? Literally... He says it's like going into the grave with Jesus when you go under the water and then coming out of the grave when you come out of the water. And so it's a symbol of unifying yourself with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, of, of becoming so identified with the person and the work of Jesus that you yourself have also died and been raised by the same God who raised Jesus from the death right? That's what this symbol means. So when we do baptism in here and we sprinkle little children because we don't dunk children underneath the water, but when we sprinkle children or when we, we um, pour water on an adult, we are representing Jesus's death and resurrection. We're marking this person with Jesus's death and resurrection, saying that they too have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. Now what is today? Pentecost. There's some great symbolism in Pentecost, right? We think about the Holy Spirit. There's symbolism in the Gospels. When Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Do you literally think it was a dove? No, it was probably some shimmering thing that just looked like it was, you know, I, who knows? It probably wasn't a literal dove. And yet the writers wanted to give us a symbol of what it looked like. And so they said it looked like a dove. And so the dove has been a symbol of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years since then. But 
on Pentecost, the Spirit shows up in a different way, not as a dove, but as fire. And so the Spirit has this kind of dual symbolism within the the church, and that is both the dove and fire. Sometimes you see the dove on fire, which sounds really tasty, but it's not, right? It's the symbolism of the dual symbolism of the Spirit, that the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, but descended onto the disciples as tongues of fire. So there's symbolism that's rich and all over the early Christians. Now, this symbolism is in the PCUSA. This is our logo. Do you guys ever recognize that our logo has deep symbols? Think about it. What's that look like on the very top? A dove. The Holy Spirit. Okay? What's it look like the entirety? What does is, what is the whole thing look like? A cross. Right? What does it look like if you take the dove off? A Bible laying on top of a pulpit. All right? How many lines are there? Three. What do you think that represents? And then down below, there's two flames, right? Representing the gift of the Spirit on the people of God. And the manifestation of the Spirit in the, in the church, in the gifts. Okay, there's deep symbolism in this, and when people sat down to figure out what the logo of the PCOSA was going to be when the two denominations reunified in the 80s or 70s or whatever, well, I think it was early 80s, um, right around the time I was born, they, they thought really deeply about the symbols they wanted to include in their image so that it was something that they could be proud of and they could point to for generations to come. And so this is what they came up with. And I think it's actually brilliant. It's brilliant design work. It's brilliant symbolism. Uh, It's really good. But let me tell you this and let me be clear about my point this morning. We have all these deep, rich symbols in the church to help us worship God. But all of them, all of them are meant to make who the symbol? No! Us! You become the symbol to the world when you follow the story of Jesus and you obey Jesus' command and like the Good Samaritan, you care for everyone without discrimination and you show love and grace and mercy and hope and peace and joy to all the world. You become the symbol of Jesus for everyone outside these walls. And so all symbols in our worship, both here in our sanctuary, privately in our own homes, are designed to make you the symbol of God's grace and love to all those you encounter outside of these walls. May you become a symbol of God to everyone you encounter today and beyond. Amen. People of the story, don't forget that you yourself are a living monument to the story. That you yourself are God's symbol of his story to everyone outside these walls. The way they will come to know Jesus is because of the gospel message you'll carry in your actions and in your words to them. Beautiful. Beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring the good news. So go, go be beautiful to the world and you will be a blessing to God on this earth in all that you do. Amen.